Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Sock Takes Pod. We got a great episode for you tonight. A lot of topics lined up. We got with on the re- some of the regulars on the panel. We got John Leonard, our staff writer, and also Hello. sweet baby Aaron Gunyan. Uh, how's it going, John? It's going great. Uh, good weather finally in Dallas. Finally settling in for the semester, getting a lot of work done. It's, it's looking like springtime. Nice and uh, sweet baby. How's that Indianapolis weather? <laughs> I mean, the winters here just never end. I mean, it's not so cold. But the sun never shines. Nobody wants to talk about the weather with me. <laughs> and we got a great guest for you tonight. Uh, he was recently with the Des Moines Menace of the PDL. He was a general manager there. Uh, also has quite a bit of MLS, MLS experience in the front office of DC United um, and later worked with FC Edmonton. So we are pleased to have our guest Matt Hamanoff with us tonight. Matt, how's it going? And thanks for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. So let's jump right into it. Um, I didn't give away your your current role in the intro because uh, you have a bit of personal news to share, a little career move you made. Um, first of all, congratulations, and uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your gig? Sure. Um, five very successful years with the Des Moines Menace, uh, as the GM overseeing the men's and women's team came to an end this past uh, fall, and I accepted a role with the WPSL, the Women's Premier Soccer League, um, as an associate commissioner for the Central Region. So I'll be overseeing uh, the 31 teams in the Central, divided up into four conferences, which basically covers the entire Midwest plus Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, So excited for that challenge. Um, I had done a little work on that front, uh, while I was still with the Des Moines Menace, but really happy to dive right in and uh, and get the central region of the WPSL up to the level that we all know that it, it can be, given the incredible explosion of uh, of interest and of teams at that U23 women's level. And you're probably familiar, Matt, but here, Aaron and I, out here in Indianapolis, we're going to be watching the the WPSL along with uh, several other Hoosiers because Indianapolis is set to field a a squad in the WPSL, uh, Indy Saints FC. So I don't know, Matt, hopefully you uh, got to personally meet some of the guys associated with it. Uh, Jason Brown, who's head coach of the men's side, um, and also kind of the director of operations and owner Chris McGrath. So um, have you gotten a chance to meet either of those guys? And uh, what do you think about the Indianapolis market uh, joining the WPSL? Well, I, I did get a brief chance to, to chat with them at our annual general meeting this past weekend in Las Vegas. It's, they're actually the second team in Indianapolis. Uh, you have a, an existing franchise there, FC Pride, um, led by Jamie Gilbert, uh, who have had a great run the past, I believe, two years. Uh, so we're really excited as a league to see two teams in the Indianapolis market and the, uh, the natural rivalry that, that derbies like that um, often, uh, often breed. Um, but, it, you know, obviously from the outside looking in Indianapolis is a phenomenal soccer market, um, both at the pro and the amateur level. So I think that as people um, look to that city and, and the continued growth of the game, um, that there's nothing but good things ahead. And you recently were with FC Edmonton prior to your stint with the Des Moines Menace. Um, and we're also going to talk here in a little bit about the Canadian Premier League, the CPL that is forming and hoping to play in 2019. So as most of our listeners probably know, 
FC Edmonton kind of came to a crossroads as uh, the NASL was trying to find its footing. And most people thought that they were going to announce their departure from the league with the intent to join the CPL. But I feel like most people were quite shocked when the news broke and it was it was reported as a shutdown. Um, the club was going to cease operations. So I guess, Matt, my first question regarding FC Edmonton is, were you shocked to see that or was that something you expected um, to, to happen? And was that strategic? Um, was that maybe a way, I don't know, to possibly avoid potential litigation or something, you know, cause it's kind of, sometimes it gets ugly when you're leaving a league. Um, so maybe they just thought to shut down with the intent to come back to the CPL, but what's your overall take on the, the FC Edmonton situation? You posed some really good questions there, Kevin. I, I think I should point out that I worked for FC Edmonton for the 2012 season, immediately before coming uh, to Des Moines as the, as the GM. And at the time, obviously, the NASL overall and FC Edmonton in particular were very different, um, different league, different, different franchise. At the time, I think FC Edmonton was only in its third year of existence and second in an actual league setting. Um, and the, uh, the optimism there was great until people started to really realize what the challenges are of running a pro team when you have a climate like you have in Edmonton. Um, I tell people it's not the snow in September and October that gets you. It's the snow in May and June that gets you. Um, so if you really look at the opportunity they had to maximize their crowds, um, in Edmonton and, and draw uh, fans in and, and create new fans in, in what was obviously a, a newer market to that league, um, going to a split season, as the NASL did a few years after that, I think hurt Ed Edmonton in ways that people didn't fully appreciate. Having so much time off in July, while it was great for the Southeastern uh, U.S.-based teams in Florida and, and um, nearby, uh, really hurt Edmonton in ways that, that I don't think people outside that area could appreciate or did appreciate. Uh, so when the ownership, uh, led by Toffath, who is, is as passionate a soccer guy as, as you'll meet and obviously spent a tremendous amount of his own money um, propping that project up, when he did not receive the support from the Edmonton community in terms of consistent attendance, um, and then, of course, the extension of that is consistent support from either the city or corporate partners. I think the writing was on the wall. So while initially I'd count myself in the group uh, that was surprised that they shut up shop when they did and didn't go on to become a founding member of the Canadian Premier League, I think it, it, in hindsight it makes a lot of sense uh, because at any level, uh, without the support and without those revenue streams, it's tough to continue to run a team at a loss. Um, without a, a light at the end of the tunnel, as they say. Matt, this is Aaron. I'm going to jump in real quick, if you don't mind. The the fans, I think, were picking up some support for Edmonton. I think you mentioned correctly that Canadian winters can pose a challenge. But I think that yeah. the fan number totals were actually climbing in the last season. So I wonder if you hit on a more pertinent point about corporate sponsorship and community involvement uh, or maybe city backing. I think that that's a, a very fair point to bring up because the, yeah, the numbers think, that I was yeah, seeing about the overall attendance were increasing. Yeah. Increasing. Yes. 
but but if you read Tom Fath's comments in, in uh, one of the last releases the team sent out, he was very clear about the fact that although the support was getting better, uh, they still didn't have the sellouts or the high-end attendance marks that they were looking for, given I the see. infrastructure improvements and investments they made at, at Clark Field. Um, you know, he at, at his own expense, he put in seating and the scoreboard and, and um, really, it, from, from my perspective, stepped up to the plate, as they say, to, uh, to create a great fan atmosphere, um, did some great things with promotions and catering. Um, and to your point, yes, the, the fan base was increasing, uh, but it did not get to the point where it could justify the, the um, continued investment, I, I guess, from his perspective. Yeah, sure. I think that might have been a problem with NASL in general. If if many teams were facing the same challenge that Edmonton was, I know they had a hard time getting the numbers they needed in San Francisco. I think for the size of a market like New York City, the Cosmos have always struggled to to make their attendance numbers that they need to be, you know, financially sustainable. What other things do Absolutely. you see? If what other things do you see like? The NASL set some target goals. You know, where where else did maybe I'm not going to say they fell short, but maybe their expectations didn't match up. Yeah, I think it it all comes back to paid attendance. You know, the the joke, for lack of a better term, um, in front offices is anyone can print out a thousand tickets and leave them on a corner uh, for people to take, and then simply claim that in the announced attendance. But when it comes down to how owners see their investment, uh, they're obviously looking at the paid attendance figure. Uh, and I think for too many teams uh, in North America right now, you have a, a massive discrepancy between the number of people that are truly willing to pay game in and game out to come and watch that team and the, and the fans that are only happy to go if they get a free ticket and if, if the stars align and the weather's nice and the team's playing well and it meets with their personal schedule. I think there's a, a big um, a big range of, of fan of the types of fans that we're seeing going to games, and obviously this is a, a broad generalization. Um, but uh, until we see more situations uh, like we see um, with the more successful teams, where they can count on their fan base to come and pay for that ticket every single game then I think you're, you're going to continue to see certain markets struggle uh, to have professional teams that they can consistently support. And John... Personally... Oh, okay. go ahead. Okay. Uh, John, I had a quick question for you. In your, mm-hmm. your ongoing segment at Sock Takes, Project 5050, where what he does is he explores markets that are ripe for about the D3 level uh, of soccer. And you had a very interesting point when you covered Alaska... Um, you thought uh, a certain city would be the best market there. And you also had a quite clever idea for um, where that team might play. Um, so maybe it might not happen ever, but uh, I thought it was a pretty clever idea. So uh, tell us your thoughts on uh, Alaska. With Alaska, it's it's kind of difficult to group any Alaskan teams into a leagues with a heavy mainland U.S. presence. We've only really seen uh, hockey teams do okay, and that's mainly because if they're getting to play in, say, the Pacific Northwest in particular. 
And my thoughts were that if we were to put a team in Anchorage or Juneau, that having them playing the Canadian Premier League, if they're getting to play against Calgary, Edmonton, and say maybe Victoria or Vancouver, that at least from a cost perspective, it's a lot easier to get from Anchorage to Vancouver than it is to go from, say, Anchorage to L.A. Yeah. Um, I definitely don't disagree, and I, you know, I thought that was a, a it's a great segment you've got going on, and I, I find it interesting. Pretty much all the cities you, you touch on, but uh, I thought that was a really clever idea. You know, just the possibility because it makes sense regionally. And one of the biggest pitfalls of the NASL was the travel distance. You know, the the, the struggle to yeah. reach the time zone requirement, and so you never get away day fans, and the the flights are super expensive. It, it's just not practical. So yeah. Plus, you also had the ownership of Rio OKC saying they needed to take a bus to every away game (laughs) at one point, including Edmonton, the Cosmos, and Puerto Rico. And well, I don't think they did that. I mean, they did say that, or that was reported allegedly. They didn't do that. I think Indianapolis was their closest rival at that time, and it would have been twelve hours or so. I checked that week. They, they did not drive to Indianapolis. Yeah. And, well, I assumed that that was an impossible goal to fulfill because I've never seen somebody drive to Puerto Rico. <laughs> and John, well, not, uh, another club you, you, you followed quite closely um, is the menace in the PDL. So you had a couple questions you wanted to, to fire off at Matt. So uh, why don't you just uh, get to the menace? Well, the menace is one of these... For me, it's one of the most interesting teams in that at the PDL level, in a lot of ways, Detroit, uh, the Detroit City sort of idea that we see now of this fourth division semi-pro development league teams, but with really well-run organizations and high community support that in a lot of ways, the, the menace were kind of the original one. And, you know, their attendance was always north of 3,000 for over a decade. And I was always wondering about what sort of, what was sort of the thought process behind the organization of, you know, what are our long-term goals? What is sort of the club's strategy? And how did you see the organization marketing itself? Uh, It's it's a good question. I, I think any conversation of the menace goals has to come back to um, a combination of the ownership, uh, which is headed up by Kyle Kraus, um, who's owned the team since 1998, and the, the front office staff that he put in place. Um, I don't think there's any doubt, uh, either locally or regionally, that the menace were focused on serving the community uh, and, and serving the need that the community had for the highest level of soccer uh, being played anywhere in the state of Iowa. Um, so I think that the goals of the organization were consistent in terms of putting the a product on the field um, that fans could consistently be proud of and, and would consistently be entertaining, uh, but one that was also consistent with the revenue that was coming in, uh, because there's no, um, there's no shortage of examples around U.S. soccer, of course, with teams being able to and, and sometimes spending more money um, than they really need to or should uh, just simply to have a higher level team. So I think that the, the history of the menace is one where 
Um, the owner has put in a tremendous uh, investment into keeping the team going, um, but that the revenues uh, that are coming in have not yet reached a point uh, where playing at an even higher level makes sense, um, at least in the short term. Um, to your question about long term, I can tell you that obviously, uh, like virtually any other high-performing amateur team, PDL or otherwise, we had had discussions with um, with the USL and specifically in their D3 project. Uh, and I know that the organization continues to evaluate that moving forward. Whether or not they'll move, take that step in 2019 uh, when that league is supposed to launch or uh, at a later point remains to be seen. Um, but I, I can tell you that we were certainly in the process of evaluating it as recently as this past fall. And oddly enough, in Project 5050, I'm currently working on Indiana and Iowa, having just finished uh, writing Illinois. And the Des Moines Menace was my pick for the best run organization in the state that would be, in, in my opinion, an absolute uh, undeniable benefit to USL D3, should they choose to take that route. And I... I'm really excited to hear that they've been evaluating it because I've been so proud of what that organization's achieved. Well, I, I can tell you on behalf of everyone who has worked for the team and, and all of its supporters, that's de- that sentiment is definitely appreciated. Um, but it, it comes back to my earlier point, um, and not to stress too much the negatives, but the reality is, is that um, the attendance figures for the menace, while very strong, relative to other amateur teams uh, are still not yet consistently at a point, even in the good weather months of the PDL, May, June, and July, um, to make success at the D3 level a slam dunk. Oh, yeah. Um, So I I think that it's going to take a lot of work moving forward and and most likely a stadium solution, uh, because although Valley Stadium, where the Menace have played the last, I think, about seven years or so, is great and is a, is a wonderful high school football venue that, that has some good amenities for soccer. It is not a soccer-specific venue, and mm-hmm. it's completely uh, wrong-sized at uh, almost 10,000 seats for, for that level of play. Um, so while the crowds of 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 um, are great on paper, the atmosphere is not yet what it could or should be moving into the pro, uh, into the pro game. Uh, again, I, I don't want to focus on the negatives but i think it's important to point them out yeah i i think that's that's one of those things is the organizations who are i, I want to say it's like cautious optimism is, is sort of how i would phrase it where it's they've got some ambitions but it's a very methodical deliberate very analytical approach instead of some of the flying by the seat of their pants stuff like you've said where teams will spend way more than they reasonably should or reasonably can afford to do so and we've seen time and time again that those more uh that 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 slower pace but focusing on stability and the uh long-term viability is the teams who do succeed and survive the longest and i think that's that's well in line with what i would have expected to hear given the way the organization's been run in the past but i'm just I guess uh, I'll just say that if they choose to go that route, they'll probably do so in a very similar way. And I think it may be in 10 years from now, we'll be uh, celebrating the success story in Iowa. And that would be great. 
And Matt, another thing I wanted to ask you, kind of a hot button issue specific to kind of that PDL NPSL level is the issue of implementing possibly full season play. Uh, I know a lot of people are people are in favor of it. My question to you is, what do you think are kind of the logistics if that were to happen? Because um, obviously college players have to report at a certain time in the fall. That was actually an issue with the NPSL championship game with Midland Odessa. Um, they basically, I think they literally had 11 players on the dot possibly available uh, something like that. But anyway, they were really hamstrung for the for the final because players had to report to college. So just what are the logistics of, uh, you know, leagues that use college players? Um, how can they squeeze in just more games in the season period? Yeah, it, It's a great question. And quite frankly, I don't see an easy solution. Uh, one of the major challenges of running a higher level team in amateur soccer in the U.S. is the player pool, is the available player pool. If you want to utilize players who are the best current college players um, that are coming to you because this is the highest level they can play at and keep their college eligibility for at least one more NCAA fall season, then you cannot realistically go past the very beginning of August. And even that is a massive challenge. Um, The PDL took the steps a couple of years ago to have their championship game uh, be that first weekend in August, and they split out the semifinal, which is now the last weekend in July. Um, I can tell you from personal experience that some of the best players on our team, regardless of whether they were college players that were being called back by their uh, universities to either work summer camps or report for captain's practices, or they were players that were done with their college eligibility but anxious to start their fall pro seasons, either overseas or um, Uh, or with some domestic opportunities uh, in the USL, teams lose players left and right. Uh, You know, there's examples every single year of the best PDL teams not having access to their very best players um, because of conflicts uh, with, with other programs that those players end up prioritizing over their teams. So when people talk about making the season longer, it's absolutely unrealistic given the current player pool um, and the fact that the vast majority of players in the playing in the PDL um, as well as the NPSL are current uh, NCAA students that to fulfill the obligations to their scholarship have to be back in early August um, back on campus to report to their, their teams. Um, Obviously like, uh, like anything else, there are exceptions. Uh, you know, I, I think often about the Milwaukee Torrent and what they've been able to accomplish uh, with a true semi-pro team. And they can call it semi-pro because they do have paid professionals on their um, NPSL roster. But they're the exception, not the rule. The, the teams that have current college players can't even call themselves semi-pro, um, technically speaking, uh, because of NCAA guidelines on that. Um, you cannot have a pro and an amateur playing on the same team. They can play against one another, but but obviously cannot be on the same same roster at the same time. So it's a, it's a difficult one to try and figure out as long as you have the vast majority of, of the top talent at the 19 to 23 year old age range playing in the NCAA. Let's hey Matt, it's Aaron again. Hey, let's can we tie this back to WPSL? Where what's the majority of the player pool? Unfortunately, I'm going to remedy this this summer, but unfortunately, I have not watched 
one minute of WPSL, I now have so many options and I'm going to be spending time really taking it in this summer. But what's the player pool like and what are some of the challenges? Are they similar? Are, are you yeah, looking it, to make changes very... and, and what are your... This is like a seven-part question, Matt. You're just going to have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> what are your challenges? What are you looking to do to change and, and maybe um, how do you plan to overcome them? It's a good question, and and uh, it's actually very similar in terms of its answer to the PDL. Um, the, the WPSL is primarily college-age players, although I will say that in my experience, the age range is um, greater on the women's side uh, than you see on the men's side. Uh, for example, in Des Moines, the, major- the vast majority of our men's player pool was between the ages of 20 and 24, whereas our women's player pool was as young as 16 and 17, assuming, of course, they could contribute at this level, and went up to 27, 28, 29 years old. And I think a lot of that has to do with socioeconomic factors and the fact that that there were just simply more women at different ages able to make the commitment for an amateur team relative to our men's player pool. Um, So the short answer to the first part of your question is that the player pool is primarily college-age players. It can include high school-age players, assuming that their high school eligibility is done, um, and uh, or, or if they're simply bypassing playing high school at all, uh, which obviously many players do. Um, and then, of course, post-collegiate players are, uh, are always an option, assuming that they still have their amateur status or, or have gotten it back after a pro career. Uh, which is something you can do for uh, for just a $25 fee to, to U.S. soccer. Um, so the the overall answer is is that the WPSL focuses on current college players who want to play at the highest level they can and keep their eligibility for at least one more fall season. I'll, I'll note that in direct response to situations that have arose the past couple of years, the WPSL has actually moved its national championship weekend up a weekend, one weekend earlier to the second to last weekend in July, because we've seen over the past couple of years that with a a national championship weekend at the very end of July, the very best college programs, particularly in division one, call their players back for everything from camps to captain's practices and and overall campus activities um, at the end of July, even though technically the the NCAA window doesn't open up until early um, August. Uh, I want to say August 8th or 9th off the top of my head. So in response to the best college coaches uh, and teams saying we want our players back or want to give them a rest um, before the fall season starts, the WPSL um, has moved up its national championship, which will now be the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of July. Um, It's not that dissimilar at all from the men's side, uh, where teams, as I mentioned earlier, struggle to keep their best players Um, engaged and all fighting for postseason success when their minds obviously turn to getting back on campus for their fall seasons. So we tied in the WPSL to the PDL. Let's go ahead and transition and make a a tie-in between the PDL and MLS. So let's talk a little bit about the MLS Super Draft. Um, I know, Matt, you have got to see quite a few of these players taken up close and personal. But before I kick it to you, Matt, um, Aaron, let's jump into uh, one of our favorite players, local Indianapolis kid from Butler University, Eric Dick, a.k.a. Brick Wall, 
Phenomenal goalkeeper. He was taken 13th overall in the first round by Sporting KC. And Aaron, while I stop rambling, first of all, how did you do? You, do you think that was an appropriate place to take Eric Dick? Do you think that was a reach, the proper place? Um, and also, how do you think his skills translate? And um, how do you rate him overall as a prospect? That was a seven-part question. That's really good. <laughs> and first of all, never stop rambling. That that's what makes this podcast great. To address the first or seventh part of your question, Eric Dick is a beast. I was a little shocked to see him go so high, but he does have all the physical attributes that you'd be looking for, I think, at the next level. He he has the strength, he has the, the height, and his leaping ability is amazing. I know that IU had a tremendous goalkeeper and was, was highly publicized as, as they made their championship run. Some local sports pundits classified him as the best keeper that they'd ever seen, but I challenged that they did not see Eric Dick. You and I both had a chance to catch a few games at, at Butler this year, and he made some saves that were game-changing, game-saving, game and just mind-blowing. He also has no regard for human safety. He, he will go up and challenge for absolutely anything, and that is, that is something that's going to make for an exciting player. I think some of that might need to be reined in, just a touch, but uh, very excited, very happy for him. Happy that I got to see him. Other players on the Indiana watch, uh, IU had a player taken in the first round. I can't remember the exact position, maybe fifth position, Mason Toy. Am I saying that right? Or yep. Toye? Yep, Mason Toy um, forward. Yeah, forward. He went to Minnesota United. So congratulations to him. And then at 14th, I believe, 14th or 15th, John Gallagher from Notre Dame. So three Indiana schools represented in the first round of the MLS Super Draft. Pretty pumped about that. Any thoughts for you? Well, Matt, I'll kick it over to you because uh, for you, you said from the menace perspective of things, Eric Dick was kind of the one that got away. Just for whatever reason, the timing was never right or an injury here. Um, but it sounded like he was very close to maybe suiting up for the menace. Um, and it never quite happened. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, and also some of the several other guys you got to see up close and personal with the menace that got got plucked in this uh, 2018 MLS Super Draft. Sure. Uh, no, I think you just hit the nail on the head. Eric Dick was always um, uh, on our radar, uh, but I believe it was two years ago when Mike Makovic was our uh, head coach in Des Moines uh, that he, we registered um, Eric, and then unfortunately he suffered a knee injury. Uh, in his spring season at Butler that year and, and didn't end up playing anywhere uh, that, that summer. So that's unfortunately part of the, uh, part of the game. Uh, so he was, he was never classified as a menace player formally. Um, but there's, there's no shortage, it seems like every year, of, of players that go on um, after successful PDL uh, summers to then have good college seasons and, and end up uh, making an impact uh, initially in the draft and then ultimately in MLS. Um, the ones I'm most excited about, uh, players that I, I got uh, a chance to work with over the past couple of years inc include Chris Mueller, um, uh, true number 10 uh, from the University of Wisconsin, who went number six overall to Orlando. Uh, I could see him uh, certainly succeeding. He's, you talk about a great technical player. Uh, played the 2016 season in Des Moines uh, and then played in his hometown of Chicago this past summer with Chicago FC United. Uh, 
Um, his Wisconsin teammate, Tommy Barlow, uh, went 39th overall to uh, the New York Red Bulls um, and is a prototypical target forward, you know, something uh, that uh, – and a great finisher to boot, um, something that, you know, obviously uh, goals are uh, a, a, an incredibly valuable commodity, so, uh, so I'll, I'll continue to look to see um, how he progresses. Uh, but if I had to pick just one, the, the one player that I'm, I'm most excited about that I had a chance to work with in Des Moines is Lucas Stauffer. Uh, Lucas is a, a wingback, uh, plays on either the right or the left, uh, had a great college career at Creighton um, and was taken in the second round, I think 26th overall by the Vancouver Whitecaps. So uh, talk about an engine that, that doesn't quit and, and uh, technical and, and knows the game and reads the game incredibly well. Uh, excited to see how he um, continues to progress now that he's a, a full professional. And uh, another player I was impressed by, uh, the win in the same round, also from Creighton, was Stauffer's teammate, Ricky Lopez-Espin. Uh, I actually got to see him drop a brace live earlier this season, um, playing at Butler. Great game, one of the, one of the best games I've seen all year, actually, pro or otherwise. Um, Creighton jumped out to a 2-0 lead. And Butler looked finished. They looked done. I mean, they, they gained a little momentum. They fought back. But it must have been like to the 84th minute or something. Maybe it was the 81st. But they still hadn't even found a goal. So they pulled one back past the 80th, pulled another one back. And then, of course, they play, you know, golden goal style, uh, two 10-minute OTs in college. So sure enough, um, Butler got the game winner in OT. So it was a three to two final phenomenal match. But uh, yeah, I got to see Lopez Espin score two goals. Um, I thought he was a great value pick by Rayel Salt Lake, the 33rd overall pick in the second round. Um, I, he's more of a, he is kind of a target forward. I, I don't know. Like he, he probably, he has good hold up play. I would say he doesn't, you know, he's not to make a, an Indy 11 comparison. A lot of our listeners are Indy 11 fans, but he's kind of, he's not a Justin Braun, you know, he's not going to give you heavy mileage, um, drifting, uh, playing underneath from touchline to touchline, but he's a he's kind of a, a stick on the the last defender type of forward. But he's a great finisher, um, just great goal scoring instincts. And I think most people projected him to go like late first, so he definitely fell. And I thought that was a really good value pick. Um, and yeah, I was also super impressed by Stauffer. I actually, now that I look at his picture, I do recall seeing him. You know, I was kind of paying more attention to Butler, honestly, because you know I was working on a game recap. But uh, I definitely recall Stauffer was uh, impacting the game. For, and I think the coach, I'm almost certain, switched sides, um, as you mentioned, Matt. I think he started on one side and then played the other fullback position um, in the second half. So very versatile player, was impressed by Creighton. And um, John, let, let's kick it back over to you, because um, every question today is a multiple pronged question. So I'll give mm -hmm. you a nice two parter here. Um, uh, what are give me a, a pick that you liked and one pick that you didn't like in the super draft? The well, I'm as I've mainly been focusing on FC Dallas's pick. I think that Atua Hene was one player that you know, PDL experience, college experience. He's the sort of player that when I look at, you know, his college stats, his uh, PDL stats, it makes a lot of sense that Oscar Pereja would look at him and say, this is the guy I want first. It's, he's got, uh, he's quick. He's 
got pretty good head about him when it comes to being, you know, just generally aware on a field, which is excellent for us. But he's also not really quite refined in his play just yet. And I look at that and I think, yeah, that's I, I can definitely see why Oscar would look at this because he's he's got a very high ceiling and he is very excited to be part of the organization. And I think that given some time with our player development people, he's got a pretty bright future ahead of him. I didn't see any picks in particular this year that I think were just downright wrong. There are a few picks that I look at and think, I don't know why that team would do that. Minnesota continues to make me feel a little bit confused with whatever it is they've got going on. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that they got the defensive stronghold they need in uh, Wyatt Omsberg. He's not a bad player. I just don't think that that pick was the right pick for them. I don't know. Cool, and uh, um, I'm not scared to criticize. I'll hop in here with a pick I didn't really like. Uh, I thought I'll just start with because uh, the day of the draft, a couple hours before, I tweeted out kind of my big board for the top ten. So what I'll do is I the, the, basically the first player picked that was not in my top ten. I'm just gonna go ahead and say that it was a reach. So for me, it was Tristan Blackman, third overall pick, defender from Pacific, taken by LAFC, the expansion side. Um, they actually they traded up to get him. It looked like. Yeah, 200K um, of allocation Garber Bucks from uh, D.C. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've seen a little bit of tape of the guy. There isn't much tape out there. Uh, in fact, I recall like during the draft, they even showed some footage of him, and it was like the most basic stuff. It was just like he stepped in front and intercepted a pass, which it was a, it was a nice play. But And I'm not even the type of person. I don't expect you to show the, de- the defender scoring goals for the highlights because, you know, come on, that's, you know. But uh, it, it didn't seem like, I don't know, he didn't blow me away. Um, he, he looks like a decent player, but to me he looked more like a, an end-of-the-first-rounder, maybe a second-rounder, but I just I don't think you can justify uh, taking him with the third overall pick. So I didn't like that pick. Um, to second-year Atua Haney um, comments, I absolutely love that pick. In fact, I had him first on my big board. So had I been LAFC's GM, I would have been lobbying to, to take him number one overall. Uh, he did actually get hurt, a pretty serious injury recently, but the good news is it's to his arm. Um, it's a fractured ulna, did require surgery, but he's expected back um, as early as two weeks and up to six weeks. So it looks like uh, he... he was um, at the workout with the team uh, the other day, just the other day. Nice, nice. Good for him. So he, he's they've got him. In, we actually have a sports rehab and medicine clinic inside of our stadium that's where they operate out of and uh he's been working with his teammates just at and around the stadium and he is expected to travel but not play but just like be present during the uh friendly this weekend the preseason friendly in chattanooga cool and one reason i really like him is to use everyone's favorite cliche is he's dynamic um, and also, in addition to that, 
he can also he can do the normal and he can also do the spectacular. For example, he actually shattered the Indy 11's U.S. Open Cup hopes while playing for the Michigan Bucks. He ripped an absolute galazzo. It was outside of the box, maybe 25 yards out, but just a darting ball straight into the corner. Keeper had no chance because the ball was just such a laser with movement on it. So he also can just impact the game without scoring because, you know, um, I'm not going to use, you know, he's got pace. You know, of course he has pace, you know. Um, he's one of the fastest players in the draft. Uh, he can dribble, keeps the ball, you know, like a yo-yo close to his foot. Um, pretty good vision, can pick his head up and find people. Um, so, you know, he'll, he'll get assists, he'll get you goals. But I think it's just, you know, that's what you want. Um, if you're going to invest a, a first pick overall, you want the the prospect with the highest ceiling. You know, and I just think his ability to, even if he's not doing the spectacular, he's still going to give you a lot. And then that icing on the cake is just his ability to give you that special goal, that glazo from distance or, you know, mm-hmm. be, just destroy someone off the dribble and, and make a play. So for me... Hey, I, he reminds me a lot of Fabian Castillo in a lot of really good ways. And if he turns out to be that sort of quick, lethal, the absolute nuisance of the entire rest of the league, then I will be very, very happy. Cool. Well, uh, Matt, we've taken up quite a bit of your time. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Any final thoughts you wanted to share about the super draft or otherwise? No, not on the super draft. Uh, I, you know, I, as we've discussed earlier, um, uh, I'm certainly interested to see the continued development of D3, uh, as well as expansion throughout the minor league system, because I think that's the uh, one of the top storylines in American soccer right now. Communities that uh, would be ready to embrace a pro team uh, and support it. Um, I, I don't know that there's a, a better way to grow the game than to provide role models for young kids who are faced um, with more and more options uh, for their free time. Um, So if we're truly going to continue to develop as a a soccer nation, as a soccer power, we need to have pro teams where kids can look up to uh, these players as role models um, and uh, and say, hey, I, I know I need to practice more and, and get better if I really want to be like that and play at that level. So those are the storylines that I'll continue to look at. John, any final thoughts for us? Uh, I just I'd like to just get a couple of quick questions if you're able to talk about these and that just with the with that whole future of that that small community feel. What is the WPSL changing versus, say, the previous years with the new ownership and the new visions? What's different in their approach? I think minimum standards is at the beginning of uh, every conversation. You know, the the WPSL a couple of years ago eclipsed the 100-team mark nationally. It's Mm -hmm. by far and away the largest uh, women's soccer league in the world. Um, And when you have that many teams, I I think it's a no-brainer to say that there were going to be challenges with keeping the minimum standards up for the low end of the league. So one of the things I've been most impressed with um, from the new ownership is holding teams accountable. And quite a few teams, quite frankly, were not invited to return for the 2018 season uh, because of a pattern of not being able to meet minimum standards and provide 
an experience for both their players and their fans uh, that was consistent with where the league wanted to be. So I think that's the that's the beginning of that conversation. As it continues on, I think that media and exposure um, for the league is, is going to be a priority moving forward, uh, that there's too many great stories uh, of players and teams that go unreported every year. Um, so I, I think that uh, their focus on a redesigned website and for media and PR overall uh, is going to be great for the women's game at that U23 level. Well, that sounds very much like what the USL started to talk about a few years ago when before the MLS partnership, when they were changing their vision. And that sort of approach worked out very well, that minimum standards thing. Because, yeah, that turnover in the WPSL was one of the most kind of absurd things in soccer. And to hear that that's the primary focus makes me really confident for the future of the league. And before we sign off for tonight, I'm going to do a quick rundown of our patrons. Um, If you didn't know, Matt's actually one of our patrons. So thank you so much, Matt, for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Could not do what we do without you and all of our other patrons. So without boring you to death, I'm just going to really quick rattle off every single one of our patrons. I know it's actually a special tier reward for people at a certain level, but we're feeling extra nice today. We're going to give everybody a shout out. So um, obviously start with our good friend, Matt Matt Habanoff. Charles Fenwick, Tony Hebenstreet, Brandon Evans, Larry Johnston, my dad, Scott Grimes, Joe Collier, who just joined up today. Thank you, Joe. Holden Hill, Danny Clark, Philip Durbin, Ben Fulton, Bradley Weigel, Dan O'Day, Alex Adair, Justin Becht, Atlantic City FC, shout to them, Joshua Milbrath, John Pilkington, Nick Suberling, David Sullivan, Galen Riley, Jeremy Lance, Brandon Hill, Adam Clark, Brian Weigel, Gordon Widener, Eduardo Cavazos, Andrew Breesey, Robert Myron, Jonathan Lucchesi, Aaron Gibson, Don Woodman, Jason Bornman, Bo Durr, Chrissy Johnston, my wife, Dot Ryan, Tyler Vaughn, Greg Rakestraw, Ian Park, Sean Carter, Ryan Parker, Ryan Jernigan, Jordan Cooper, Eric Albers, David Corey, Robert Hay, Bilal Saeed, Soccer Down Here, Stephen Crucey, and Paul Tapier. So thank you so much to all of our patrons. Um, this has been episode 40. And before we sign off, uh, John, where can our listeners find you on Twitter or elsewhere? Uh, Twitter at John MLTX, J-O-H-N-M-L-T-X. On Instagram at John MLTX, J-O-H-N-M-L-T-X. On Reddit, I'm user John MLTX. You're going to probably notice a pattern here. Uh <laughs> I've got some flag-related soccer flag projects, which are going to be trickling out over Instagram with the posts to come on sock takes with the entire USL covered and some of the PDL, NPSL, UPSL teams that I've done some stuff for. I've got Project 5050, which is probably going to end up actually including about 80 markets. Indiana alone is going to have four because I was indecisive and feeling (laughs) on a real writing kick. Uh, That should be coming out not too long from now, now that I've actually just been sitting down and writing for hours. 
and the part four is also underway. So part three and part four will have the shortest gap between their release dates out of all of the parts, probably. So stay tuned. And uh, we might even see a few more interesting things coming out, including something I've been researching on the Boston Breakers. Awesome. And we lost Aaron. He dropped off a while ago. I think he had some technical difficulties. So Matt, tell our listeners, where can they find you on social media? And also, how can they learn more about the WPSL? Uh, website WPSLsoccer.com uh, is a great resource. Uh, I'm personally on Twitter, Twitter at, at Matt Hominoff. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to warmer weather and, and some live soccer outside. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Again, this has been episode 40. We will be recording probably next week, so tune in for that episode. And until next time, good night.